The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Welcome to the third and final hour of the Talking Point here on SFM 104.2-107 Nationwide. Join the conversation whenever you want to on 86 the WhatsApp line 61 That's 61 And uh, we are also on X. We are at SFM Radio and you can hashtag SFM Talking Point. So many of you were fascinated when I started the show this morning talking about the fact that did you know that 200 million years ago geologists are saying we had dinosaurs here in South Africa I took a drive yesterday afternoon to get to the Golden Gate Highlands National Park which is where we are broadcasting from and had a fascinating trip around the Golden Gate Highlands National Park been built. It actually looks like a dinosaur if you have an aerial view of it, right? And it's surrounded by these completely magnificent mountains. Uh, It's a place unlike any place I've ever seen. And I think I'm fascinated about many elements regarding this uh, national park. Uh, The footprints is one of them. Uh, The mountains, the coloring of the mountains. Uh, there, There are many things that we spoke about. We also spoke about the indigenous knowledge systems, but there are people who are qualified more than me to talk about this experience that I had uh, at the invitation of uh, Sand Parks, and I have them in our makeshift studio here where we're broadcasting. Paddy Gordon uh, is the park manager here. He's one of my three guests in the studio. Vusi Mshabati is the hotel manager here, and Mwiboni Mufugeng is going to talk the socio-economic transformation uh, because she's the socio-economic transformation officer here at the Golden Gate Highlands National Park. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. Paddy, your voice is still ringing in my head, right? Uh, With having you tell me about the dinosaurs, I found that completely fascinating because I don't think that I, I mean, I'm relatively well-read as a South African. I don't think that I knew that we had dinosaurs here 200 million years ago. Tell me, tell the listeners the story that you told me yesterday afternoon. Certainly. I think the most... Good morning, Good morning. It's wonderful (laughs) to have you in Golden Gate. I think the most amazing thing about our dinosaurs in the in the in South Africa and in the Eastern Free State is how little people know about them. Mm. Uh, I mentioned that we had an international conference here of international top paleontologists, and to hear how much they know f- from overseas about our dinosaurs really opened my eyes. It almost scared me mm. that we are all so focused on our, our overseas dinosaurs. So some of the things that come out when they speak is the things that make our dinosaurs really special for for paleontologists, not for the average person. We want the average person to start knowing these things. But the paleontologists are telling us that the South African dinosaurs are much older mm-hmm. than the dinosaurs across the, across the world. We have a far more complete record of dinosaurs and fossils that tell a story over how dinosaurs have changed over millions and millions of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have dinosaurs uh, much larger than we imagined. We have the one that was most common, we call um, Massospondylus, which is 
refers to the neck vertebra, but we had one that was called Leduma Hadi, which was twice the size of an elephant. Mm -hmm. So why do people not know our dinosaurs? Why don't we know about our dinosaurs? It is simply a story that we need to be telling and we need to be uplifting the story. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I told you about the, the one event that uh, occurred here when the road was widened um, and a fossil was found that turned out to be a nest of dinosaur eggs. Mm -hmm. And inside the eggs, it was discovered that the full embryos with all its bones intact were still inside that. Yeah, and in fact, you said that uh, it needed just one or two more months to hatch. It was that at close. At the time. Yeah. At the time, the specialists that looked at those embryos, they figured it would, have, it would have hatched into a real dinosaur, live dinosaur, within one or two months. So that gives you an indication of how complete the embryo and the bones were already formed inside there. So that was already amazing. The second thing that made that amazing is that that nest is at least 200 million years old. And that is the oldest find of its kind internationally. And that is alone took our South African dinosaurs into the international paleontology sphere. We suddenly hit the highlights of, of dinosaurs across the world. So tell me about the building that you took me to, the building uh, that uh, is um, uh, designed. Uh, it looks like a dinosaur, right? If you have yeah. an aerial uh, view of that building and the ambition, because ultimately it's not a building that uh, is fully done yet. You expect it to be fully done in a year's time. But there's a lot of scientific uh, work that you expect to take place. What is meant to happen there? Well, because of the of the um, high profile of this find mm -hmm. and the age of the of the nest, um, it justified having a, a dinosaur center or interpretive center that we need to tell the world the story. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's going to be an interesting balance because we know kids love dinosaurs. Kids so love, love dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Yeah. But we can't make it a playground. Yeah. It is going to have to also be an, an um, highly authentic, scientifically accurate. Center for Interpretation. Yes. So that is the work that needs to be done. The building is completed. It is finished. It is an amazing, amazing building. Mm -hmm. It will incorporate our specialists. Uh, paleontologists will have special um, offices and labs inside there. And they will therefore also make sure that everything they interpret, all the information, the size, shape, everything of the models that are built there mm -hmm. are going to be absolutely accurate. Because we're going to have to cater for the young people who want to come and see and touch dinosaurs, as well as overseas um, specialist yeah. in paleontology yeah. that are going, going to want to compare. Uh, which br brings me to then VUSI, mm. because we have to take into consideration the tourism element, because ultimately this is an amazing place uh, for South Africans to experience. Tell me about the space and when you uh, market it to uh, locals and internationals alike, what it is that you say in terms of its appeal. Good morning, VUSI. VUSI, by the way, in Tlabati is the hotel manager here, the hotel where we're staying. Good morning. My name is Busumzi. My surname is Ntlabati. Your, what was your question? My question is the tourism element, the yes. tourism aspect. Uh, because like Paddy was saying, uh, the interest is going to be uh, from, did you call them pediologists? What are they? Paleontologists. Paleontologists, mm. uh, which is scientific work that has to be done. But ultimately, one of the things Paddy was saying is uh, dinosaurs are something of fascination to every kid also around the world, which means it's a place that's also meant to gather tourists outside of just the 
people who are coming to learn about those the, those those uh, dinosaurs from 200 million years ago. So when you market it for the purposes of tourism, what is you think the biggest selling point around the place? Oh, okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Golden, Golden Gate Highlands National Park, we've got uh, vast uh, accommodation and activities, which is the attraction to our tourists. Uh, talking, or in fact, looking at the museum uh, from the tourism perspective, we are looking on the issue of how we are going to get uh, the visitors to the museum. And I've got a concern there. My concern is how we are going to make them stay. Mm. I'll make an example. For instance, if let's say they go there for a tour that takes plus minus two hours, mm -hmm. then we are looking after two hours, what is it that they're going to do? Mm. Because you must remember, Golden Gate, it's not only about the dinosaur interpretation center. Mm -hmm. We've got the hotel, we've got the rest camps, We've got, uh, we've got three rest camps. You've got and the most got beautiful mountains. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So let's also bring in Mwiponi. Mwiponi is the socio-economic transformation officer. There's a community of people that, uh, you know, surround this area here. Tell me about your role as the socio-economic transformation officer here. Okay, thank you. Uh, our role as a social confirmation transformation officer is that we are actually the link to the communities. We are the people that actually interact with the communities so that they know that the park exists and then what are the values that they get from the existence of this area. So mostly what we do, we do have the community projects where we work within the communities. We want the communities to come and be in the park, enjoy the park and then also they also need to benefit from what we, we are actually doing here. So with the opening of the museum, that will also attract a lot of people to come into the park, mm. which will also be one of the business opportunities for people to come and showcase what we have in the in the local areas. So, and also it's also gonna be a good market for us with the schools, since we have a lot of schools that are coming into the park for the educational programs mm. that they learn about the landscape and then also the ecology in the area. So the museum on the opening of it, it's also one of the things that is going to attract a lot of schools coming into the area. Tell me a bit more, please, about the ecology in the area. Okay. What we are protecting and conserving in this park is the landscape. Mm. And also because it's a water catchment area, so that is also one of the most important things that the park is being preserved. And we also have the mammals, which are actually living in the grassland area. Mm -hmm. so what we kind of mammals? Uh, we have those ones that can feed on the grass, because I know people, when they come into the park, since it's a wild area, they're afraid to think maybe they are not freely to walk on our trails. Uh, but are they? Yes, <laughs> but now they get to understand that it's a grassland area mm. and then we only have those animals that feed on the grass so we don't have the predator animals because this is a specific area for only animals that can live in these biomes. So that makes them easy and then that makes them to enjoy the park and then they walk freely on the mountains. I saw some last trails. night, uh, yes. I mean, but it was dark. Tell me about the variety of the mammals that you have. Okay, we don't have lots of animals, but we would say usually we have our 
big five to the park, which is the bigger antelopes. We have our earland, which is the largest antelope that we have in Africa. We have the zebra. We also have the black wildebeest. Mm. We have the retardebeest, and then we have the blessed buck. And then we'll have the smaller ones like your springboks, your mountain uh, ridbacks. And then we also have one of the special birds that we are conserving, which are the vultures. Those are the threatened species. We have the cape vulture and the bearded vulture. Yeah, I think that though there's a conversation to be had around the issue of natural heritage protection. And any one of you can take that. Uh, and I think it talks to the value of a space like this in terms of the preservation that we talked about. Do you want to talk to the issue of the natural heritage protection? which I suppose is part mm. of the ecology of the area, is it not? Mm. Let, let me start with that one, then we can, I can give it over to Moipone to take over. Mm. We started chatting about the fact that the Free State has this amazing reputation of being the breadbasket of South Africa. Mm. Very, very productive farmland for crops and for, and for livestock. But the, the result is that almost the entire Free State is covered in farmland. Mm. The plants and the animals that we knew, our, our parents and grand grandparents knew 100, 200 years ago, have all gone. They're mm. all gone. And one or two percent of the free state plants and vegetation is protected here mm. in Golden Gate Highlands National Park. Mm -hmm. So th this is a grassland biome that is known to be very special, very productive. It is the only place that these plants and animals occur. On the, on, the, on the higher slopes of the Maluti and the Drakensberg area. So we have a very specialized area that is protected only here. You're not going to find those plants. You're not going to find those plant animals on the farms anymore. They're gone yeah. uh, because of that role that it plays. So we, we have this grassland biome, which is very well known. It is one of the least protected biomes across the world. Mm -hmm. And in it is, we call it the grassland, but please don't be fooled that there's only grass. Yeah. We have an amazing variety of bulbs, plants, um, proteas we have here. We have orchids that occur here and nowhere else. Yeah. So there is a really an amazing diversity of, of natural biota here. Uh, uh, which also, though, leads us to the discussion around the indigenous knowledge systems. Um, and uh, to what degree mm. uh, that is properly documented for future generations because if we're still reflecting on 200 million years ago yeah. about dinosaurs, I'm going to assume that those conversations should in equal measure also apply around the indigenous knowledge systems. Absolutely correct. We often find that when we speak about natural heritage, we forget to speak about the knowledge of people associated with that natural heritage. Mm. You know, uh, 200 years ago, there were no shopping centers. Right. Pe people had to learn which plants were poisonous and which you can eat. They had to know how to hunt an animal, what was that animal's behavior. They had to know what the seasons were going to do when the rainfall comes. They had to know which plants had medicinal values. There was an enormous amount of science that's associated with the plants and animals here. If we lose the plants and animals, we don't only lose that, we lose all of that indigenous science. I don't want to call it indigenous knowledge. I think it's science. It because is there's science. enormous amount of wisdom that sits in there. And the way they interpreted the environment to be able to say this is going to be a bad year or this is going to be a good year or the rains are early, the rains are late. There are things that they knew that we, have, that we are starting to forget. Mm. And the fact that the and National Park is... it's dangerous to forget them, It's Hattie. very dangerous to forget because yeah. there's knowledge in there that we haven't accessed yet. Mm. We, we get a little bit upset when the sand people have a plant called hudia. Mm. 
and they used it to suppress their appetites. Mm -hmm. The pharmaceutical companies are making billions out of that hoodia. Yeah. But that's just one hoodia. There are thousands of plants out there mm. that have medicinal values that we must be very careful we don't lose that information. What is the interest, though, uh, to try and preserve that information? What is the sort of appetite, appetite from other stakeholders other than yourselves uh, for the preservation of that knowledge? From what I've seen in this area, I've also managed the Rutherford National Park, where yeah. there's a very strong link to the environment. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the danger is that the appetite is there, but those that have the appetite don't have the resources. Mm. Or the money sometimes. Or the money sometimes, and then you know it, it opens them up for somebody to come and take advantage of them, mm. take their knowledge and make money out of it. So we have, I think what we should say here is that we've got one or two of the boxes already checked. Number one, the plants are here. They are being protected in a national park, which means they are protected into the future. The next part we need to then do, the access is, is available, but not facilitated. Mm, mm. I think that is what, what needs to happen here, that it mustn't only just be recorded in, in a document that sits on somebody's shelf. It must be transferred to our younger generation to be taught, this is what my grandfather told me. This is what my grandparents used to eat when their stomachs were sore. Um, that kind of information must be kept alive. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about what I loved with the shapes um, and the colors oh, yes. um, as I was driving in. Because I kept saying, am I the only one who can see this? It looks like one mountain is lying on top of another and on top of another. And then uh, one of the things that you explained, because uh, I went to a mountain, I think it had three. Uh, is it three colors? Mm -hmm. I think it had uh, three colors, the shapes and the colors of the, ro of the rocks of the mountain passes. Mm. Tell me about it. You this. want to know more. <laughs> well, what's nice about it is that you actually don't need to understand it to enjoy it. Exactly yeah. like you said. Yeah, yeah. We, get, uh, we get hundreds of people driving through here on the motorcycles especially, mm -hmm. just enjoying these shapes. You know, imagining a monster shape or a face of a queen or something in, mm -hmm. inside there. But when you understand a bit more, it does add value. Um, and what is amazing about these rock formations is that they've retained the same layers and same order of layers as when they were formed over millions of years ago. Mm -hmm. So the bottom layers are, are granitic, but then what's very visible here is a layer that was a mud, um, a reddish mud, which then became a layer of red mudstone. Yeah. That was followed by an, a, an era of sand blowing over that mud, yeah. and it gave you a very yellow sandstone. And then after those two layers, there was a uh, a period of volcanic activity which put almost like the hard icing on top of the cake to protect the layers underneath. So when you drive through, you're not only seeing beautiful colors, you're seeing the colors in, this, in the same formation as when they were formed over the hundreds of millions of years. Wow. But then, Vusi, uh, when I got into my hotel room, there was a big sign warning me about baboons <laughs> and, and telling me to be extra careful because one of the things I think the, science, the sign said that ba baboons can do maximum destruction in the shortest amount of time possible. Tell me about that. Oh, okay. Uh, this is one of the warnings that we're putting to our accommodation for our guests. Mm -hmm. So we are conscientizing our guests not to feed the baboons because when you feed them, you are changing their natural habitat. I mean, a baboon, they go to the mountain, they eat. They eat what? They eat uh, grass mm -hmm. and uh, plants. Mm -hmm. But now, the minute you start to feed them, they will get used to that. And to some that which you are feeding them. Yes, yeah. we, yes. And then... 
some of the guests it won't they, they won't feed them but what they will do they will come inside the house they will start taking food and then they will scare the guests i mean we had a couple of incidents where baboons are going in a chalet and then they start taking food i mean it's that's how they that's not how they should be behaving but now some of the guests they giving the, they giving them food mm. so when they're not getting the food so they start going to the chalets and then and taking the food yes the and food. demand the food yes so we're going to continue mm. our conversation uh, around the golden gate highlands national park the gorgeous Golden Gate Highlands National Park, where we're broadcasting from, with our guests in the studio, Paddy Gordon, the park manager, uh, Vusin Tlavati, the hotel manager, and Muiponi Mufuking, the social economic transformation officer. But for now, it is 11.30, and it's time for the news headlines. You are listening to KG Muekezi on SFM. So, welcome back. We're coming to you live from the Golden Gate Highlands National Park. We're exploring some of the biodiversity and wildlife that can be found in our country. Also, uh, we will uh, have your Facebook questions. I think on the SFM Facebook page, there were a lot of questions, particularly that were sent this morning. So, let's talk this Khodum. There was a listener who said I said it wrong, <laughs> and I'm Tswana. I don't know how I could say it wrong this morning. Kodumo dumo, and, and there's an old urban legend around it. Do you want to tell me about it? Oh, you're putting me in a difficult spot <laughs> because I'm also not bossuit. <laughs> you can say it's alleged that it is. This is. I usually say this is one version of the story because okay. there are a few. Okay. So the. In Dinosaur Interpretation Center is actually going to be called the Khodumodumo mm-hmm. Dinosaur Interpretation Center in mm-hmm. honor of the fact that the whole center sits on land that was traditionally Basutu mm-hmm. uh, people's land. Mm-hmm. So the, the center is going to, I, I mentioned earlier, the center is going to be very accurately scientific, but right at the end, the last, very last part of the interpretation center, we're going to switch over to the Basutu legend mm-hmm. of, the, of their mythology and the mythological monster called Khodumodumo. Yeah. And it is believed that it is linked to the sound of thunder, and we believe that it is linked to the dinosaur footprints. We haven't men- mentioned the footprints that are found inside the park. Very, very clear dinosaur footprints in solid rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is believed that the, the link between the sound of thunder and the, and the, and the footprints of the dinosaurs came up with the the idea of the monster of Khodumodumo. Mm. And the legend goes on to explain that the, the monster swallowed up the entire village of people mm-hmm. and kept the village trapped inside. And it's only many, many years later when a hero of the story called Moshanihana Senkatana mm-hmm. faced the monster with his spear, not only killed the monster, but also released the people that were still kept and trapped inside. And uh, the story we'd like to share at the center is they were trapped by their fear they were not trapped by a monster. Yeah. Our monster often is fear. Yeah. And we'd like for that story to leave, uh, people to leave with that story, especially our young people. Face your fears. Yes. Set your people free from their fears. For me, that's the moral and of the story. And we want that to be the moral of the story. Yeah. Uh, but national parks uh, like this one sit in communities of people, right? Uh, and those communities of people uh, have to benefit from the existence of those parks. And I think let's talk about that, Mwiboni, about one, do we know how big the population that surrounds this national park is and what your intention is as sand parks uh, to benefit uh, the community that surrounds this park? 
All right, thank you. As for the population, I'm not really sure how many, but I know that we do have the closest communities to the park. Mm -hmm. We are surrounded by the four communities, which is your Bethlehem, Clarence, Guagua, and Kester. Mm -hmm. Those are the closest to the park. Mm. And then often we do have many projects that we work with the community so that they can benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the CSI projects where we would get the funding and then we see the needs within the communities because we have the different structures that we work with and then we get to know what are the needs in the different communities. So for now we do have the two boreholes that have been in progress in Putarichaba, Kwakwa, yeah. in the Mabulela and Tesen village, which have been done through the, the projects that we have here in the park. And we also have denoted during the COVID time because Kwakwa is also a place where they're having a shortage of water. Mm. So we did uh, supply the water tanks at the schools and also, we did some projects where we did some food parcels and there are also the science labs. We have done the three science labs already in the different areas here around the park. And there Is there an assessment that's done on the community's needs? To, outside of you saying we're going to do a borehole, do you first go to them to say, what, <coughs> what are your needs? Uh, so that we can service those needs. Yes, as I've said, that we have the different structures that we work within the communities. Yeah. So we do the assessment to check what are the needs within the, the communities. Mm. And then from the needs, then we provide them to our CSI projects. And then we'll see when the funding comes, which ones we can be able to, to attend to. Yeah. Vusi, you spoke about the hotel earlier on when we spoke, but you, you took me somewhere. Close. You said to me as we were driving there. You said, "I'm taking you." What you said, one one step away from heaven. I want to talk about about that that place where we went and those views that we went to look at at, at sunset and uh, how that attaches itself to the hotel and what kind of people you've attracted there and what uh, most people uh, most families go there for. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, I took you to. Highlands Mountain Retreat. Mm -hmm. That's our beautiful, beautiful self-catering accommodation. Highlands Mountain Retreat is our luxury camp and it has eight locked cabins. Mm -hmm. These excellent wooden log cabins are seated at 2,200 meters above sea level. Yeah. Yes, uh, I would say uh, that is... In fact, our beautiful uh, rest camp. Yeah. If I have to compare to Glenrinian and Basutu and the hotel. Yeah. Yes, and the clientele that we are attracting. I mean, it's in terms of the pricing. Uh, the price is a bit steeper compared to the hotel and other camp. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, if I mean, it's a place where if you want uh, a peace and quiet with your family or with your spouse, then I would say that's the best place to be. Fantastic. Uh, you So in a year, right, Paddy? Uh, because you made certain uh, uh, um, uh, commitments regarding the Hodumodumo uh, building uh, yesterday. So if I were to come back here in a, uh, well, I hope to come back here in a year, right? Oh. W what am I likely to experience there? 
Well, the, the new exhibit company was appointed in about July this year. Yeah. And they knew right from the start that they cannot just build dinosaurs. They're mm. going to have to make sure that they consult the specialists, uh, the scientists that have been working here for a long time. There are scientists that have worked on the nest and the dinosaur eggs, mm -hmm. and, and which are the dinosaurs that are known from this area. So they are in, in, in the process now of doing all of the verification, all this, uh, making sure that the... Uh, information and the shape of the models are authentically correct and they are going to build then a series of models uh, of dinosaurs they're going to explain that geology that I explained uh, they're going to explain what is a fossil why do we why do fossils still exist 200 million years later mm. what we've learned from fossils and they're going to give us a journey through a building that where the information will build on each other so that when you walk out there you know a lot more about dinosaurs yeah, yeah. We, we had a conversation also around the preservation of natural heritage. You told me um, an incredible story around thatching, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, thet thatching as a traditional practice. I want you to tell that story again and, and tell me whether uh, that thatching is still at all, if at all being done by the communities around here. Yes, this was an interesting um situation that, uh, that I inherited when I moved to the park. I was not happy that people were just cutting willy-nilly grass in the park. But when I did the, my investigation, spoke to our researchers, it is very well documented and very well uh, decided why this was allowed. There, there is an area that was covered with alien plants. Mm. And when these were removed, the certain thatch grass that came up there multiplied beyond what it's, it was natu naturally in the area. Mm. So we then went, worked with the local people that were traditional harvesters, and they were very, very interested in, in harvesting those reeds, and, and they have been doing so for oh, many, many years. Mm. And uh, the amount of thatch, I think, needs to be mentioned. Uh, I can't now show you <laughs> on screen or mm. something, mm. but a bundle is, is, is a, sh a, sh a sheath of the reeds. They collect 10,000 of these bundles mm -hmm. of, of reeds in a season. And that is used for brooms, for thatching, for the basutu hats, for the different things that they, that, they, that they do use the reeds for. And for me, what is important is that not only are we protecting this reed or making the reed available, it's once again, as we mentioned earlier, it's the fact that the traditional practice that has been going on here maybe for a thousand years can actually take place because the park is protecting this resource. Yeah, you just had an event uh, in September uh, that I clearly missed. Tell me about it and whether it's something that you have annually and whether ordinary South Africans can come and experience that event. Event. Yes, there's, uh, there's an event you have here annually in September. Sun, the Sun Parks Week. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, an event, that's right. is it not? <laughs> yeah. I think you were thinking about the running event. <laughs> you gave, me, also, yes, you gave me so many, uh, so much information and so many events, but let's talk about that uh, Sun Parks Week. Oh, okay. Uh, Sun Parks Week, I would say. Uh, it's whereby, in fact, it's it's done on a yearly basis. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are giving uh, free access to communities. Uh, I mean, uh, the rationale behind is to know your park. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I mean, we. I'll make an example. We've got close communities like Clarence, Bethlehem, Kwakwa. Sometimes when they come to Golden Gate Hotel, they will tell you, I've been... In fact, I didn't know that there is Golden Gate I Hotel. I didn't know. Yes. <laughs> so now, by having that St. Park's Week, we are giving... Uh, we are saying uh, communities come, 
know that we've got a national uh, we've, we've got this national park and you must also remember even the people that are employed here they coming to communities close by mm. but there are still people that does not know or do not know about uh the, the the South African National Park or the Golden Gate Hotel. So by doing that, sometimes you find people just walking and mm-hmm. then you stop them. Mm-hmm. Do you perhaps have a permit? Mm-hmm. They don't know where they should get a permit. Mm-hmm. So now having Sand Parks Week, we are giving that information. We are relating them to our uh, park rules. And also we are want them to know what is it that our uh, national park is offering to communities. Okay. Yes. We have a voice note from one of our listeners. I don't know who the question is for. Let's listen to it. Morning, KG. Zanele in Deben. So if we are unable as human, we shouldn't be giving the baboons, offering them food. How we should interact with them that won't backfire to us. Thank you. Yeah, do you want to respond? Yes, yes. Uh, they can, what I would suggest, they can only interact with them by taking pictures. Observing and Observing taking, and taking, and taking pictures, yes. Definitely uh, don't feed. Definitely don't feed because okay. you are changing them, how they thinking. Because when they don't, when they do not get that food, they yeah. become aggressive. Yeah. They went inside the chalet, they take the food. Yeah, I was thinking I was going to get questions from uh, the Facebook page that they sent me this morning, but uh, those those questions didn't come through. So who should come to the Golden Gate um, uh, Highlands National Park? And are you open all year round? Who should come? Anybody can take that. I'll start again. Thank okay. you very much. I think what is important about having a hotel is that we have that business clientele that we bring to the area. We are very humbled by the fact that we're not just a national park, we are a critical link in the local economy mm-hmm. of this area. Mm-hmm. To run a hotel, we buy th- tens of thousands of rands of food, cleaning mm. material, l- linen and things like that. We go out of our way to make sure that we, we spend that money locally. But ha- having a hotel means that we bring a business client to the area that normally wouldn't come to the area. Yeah. Most of the people that come and stay here come and stay in bed and breakfast, um, guest farms. But they, those uh, uh, establishments are really amazing. They're really stunning. Yeah. But they, they can't host a conference. They can't do big weddings and big events. So that is a big advantage that we have at Golden Gate National Park. Time, time je- lady and gentlemen, uh, we're done. Uh, well, I'm being told to wrap up as you can see this slide. Thank you, by the way, for having me. I had a fantastic time. I hope you invite me again. You uh, are invited. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Paddy Gordon, uh, the park manager, Vusin Tlavati, hotel manager, social economic transformation officer. And that was our time at the Golden Gates, um, Gate, sorry, Highlands National Park. Keep it as FM at all times. Later on, the full circle with Bridget Masenga, beyond the headlines with Aldrin it's time for the book reading. The book is still Muhudi by Dr. Saul Plakis and it's being narrated by Silomotrong. <laughs>